I'm sure you all saw in the bulletin the announcement about uh, Felicity Renee, Zach and Kristen Johnson's uh, third baby girl was born this week. And so, yes, some, some are very excited. Uh, that was grandma, if you do not know. Um, so uh, yeah, we're just thrilled for them. Uh, I'm very thankful for uh, both Zach and Kristen and their involvement here at WBC and leadership um, and friendship as well. And uh, very excited for them to have another little girl in the house. Uh, fun times, we love the babies around here and more are coming in the next year. And so that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, if you're not to John 14, you can turn there. That's where we're gonna be this morning, obviously. When I was a kid, uh, I remember being about eight years old in 1989 and watching the World Series, which is something we did on TV. And some of you will remember this. The World Series that year was held in Northern California, the Bay Area. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it was the, uh, between the uh, Giants and the Oakland A's. And so it was all teams in the Bay Area. So every single game was in Northern California. And I remember watching game three of that series, and as they're introducing the, the game on television, all of a sudden the screen goes black, and you can sort of hear shouting, and it goes to a standby screen, and then in a few minutes, it comes back up, and the announcers say, we've just had an earthquake here. And obviously it disrupted the series, it took about 10 days to get back, and everything, um, but there was an earthquake in Northern California, and at that time, that seemed to be a pretty normal thing. Then, I remember a few years later, there was a massive earthquake in Southern California in 1994, the Northridge quake. And I remember being a teenager and on television seeing freeways stacked on top of other freeways because it was such a huge earthquake and caused such damage due to the shaking. So, that's all that I really knew about California when I was younger. And then in 2005, Bethany and I decided to move to Southern California for me to attend seminary. And I associated the entire state with earthquakes at that point. So I assumed that when we lived there, we would experience at least one small minor earthquake. If not, we would be there for the next big one because they were talking about the next big one coming, you know? Well, it didn't happen. While we lived in Southern California for four and a half years, we never even felt the tiniest shaking from an earthquake. There was a fairly significant quake that happened, not huge, but that happened while we lived there, but we were with a youth group in New Mexico, and so we only heard about the earthquake. We never experienced one. We felt more earthquakes living here in Michigan than we did living in Southern California, which is the absolute truth. There was one after we first moved here. Some of you will remember that a few years ago. Now I talk about earthquakes because I want you to get that image in your mind of things shaking, of the ground being, um, of moving beneath your feet and you're not standing on, on something steady because I think that's the perfect metaphor, honestly, for what the disciples are experiencing here in the upper room at the beginning of John chapter 14. This is exactly what was going on in their hearts as they're listening to Jesus talk. This is the night before his death. They're together in this room going to take the Passover together. And if you remember back in chapter 13, Jesus has just told them some things that have absolutely devastated them. 
I mean, he's told them that one person in that room who's there with them is going to betray him. Then he tells them that he's going to, as he's already told them, but he affirms once again to them that he's going away from them and is going to leave their presence. He's indicating his quickly approaching death. Then he tells them, if you look back in chapter 13, in verse 38, he informs Peter that Peter, one of the leaders, the most outspoken in the group, is going to deny him within the next few hours before the sun even rises the next day. Look at verse 38. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And there's a good chance that all of the disciples in there are looking at Peter, who seems so bold and so dynamic and such a leader, and they're thinking, if Peter's going to deny him in the next little bit, what's going to happen to the rest of us? Someone's going to betray him. He's going away to death. And one of our own, one of our leaders is going to deny him. Their hearts would have absolutely been thrown into confusion and chaos in this moment. Everything seemed to be upside down. And it's into that chaos that Jesus speaks to them in chapter 14 and tries to bring reassurance and help to them. Look at the first phrase of John 14.1. Oftentimes we read this at funeral settings, and I think it's appropriate for that, but it's so helpful to get the context of chapter 13 and understand the situation that Jesus is speaking into. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. To have a a, a troubled heart, this word literally means to be emotionally in a state of turmoil or confusion. And so Jesus here, interestingly enough, gives them a command for their hearts not to go into this state of turmoil or confusion. Now, I don't know if anyone has ever told you while you're anxious and commanded you to just stop being anxious. But when they give you a direct command like that, it often does not sit very well with you and does not work. It doesn't provide much help, but Jesus doesn't just issue the command here and leave it at that. I'm the Lord. You need to just listen to me, so stop being anxious. Don't be troubled by what's going to happen. Instead, what he does is he he gives their hearts a a positive place to direct their attention. Look at the rest of verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. We could read this to say, trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus asks them, to turn their attention from their circumstances and to turn their inward gaze and their focus to God and to Him. Now, this is certainly a claim of deity, isn't it? He's saying, look, you know God is the ultimate object of trust and of of belief. But he puts himself on the same level as God the Father here. And he says, both of us are worthy objects of your absolute trust. And what he's saying is we can be trusted because of our character, because of who we are, but he doesn't stop there. 
And this is where the rest of the passage comes in. He tells them that they can trust him and that will ease their emotional trouble and their turmoil. But now in the rest of the passage, he's going to lay out some specific promises for them. And he's going to give them reasons that they don't have to be in turmoil despite their circumstances. He's going to give them three specific promises that they can absolutely trust in and they can meditate on and they can direct their hearts toward. Now, obviously, here in John 14, these promises are for the disciples in these, these particular, this particular circumstance. But I think they're intended for you and for me as well. The principles, the promises that we're going to look at this morning are for you as you face various circumstances and trouble and confusion. And when you feel like the ground underneath you is shifting and rolling along and you can't keep your feet steady, and at times it seems like you're being flipped upside down, that's exactly what these promises are for. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in John 14, 1 to 14, three promises meant to keep our hearts from trouble or turmoil. And here's the first one of them. Our future in God's presence is secure. This is in verses 2 and 3. So Jesus, in order to calm their troubled hearts, directs their attention outward toward the big picture. He zooms out. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, he mentions God's house here, and what he's talking about when he's talking about God's house is their future home, their eternal destination. This is anticipating the end of everything, where they ultimately will find their final home. And he says specifically about that eternal destination, God's house, that there are many rooms in that house. And all he's getting at with this image and this picture is there's plenty of room for you there. You will not be kept out. Trust me, there's room for you. There's plenty of space. Now concerning that future home, he gives them what looks almost like an oath here. When he says to them, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? It's almost stated like an oath where he's, he's swearing or promising to them that he's told them this and they can absolutely trust in his word. He's not lying to them. He's bringing their attention back to his character as God and saying, I've spoken this to you. I've promised that there's space and room for you in God's house, and you can trust me in this because I am incapable of lying. Now, some of you, if you grew up using the King James version of this passage or have heard that read before or have heard certain old Southern gospel songs, you probably have heard this translated that in my father's house are many mansions. And that's a little bit of an unfortunate translation there because it tends to shift the emphasis away from where it needs to be in this passage. It tends to make us think that Jesus is saying, I'm going away to make a sick house for you, a sick mansion for you, and it's going to be awesome. Now, I do think 
that our accommodations will be wonderful. And as we live on the new earth for all of eternity and have God's presence with us, that it will be joyful and we will experience the material world in ways we never could have imagined here in this cursed world. I do think that is true, but that's not the emphasis here. He's not trying to direct their attention toward their accommodations. The real point of emphasis here is found in verse 3. This is why he says all of this, and this is the core piece of his promise to them. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and here's the main part, and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That's what really matters. That's the main thing to secure your hope too. So here's the logic of what Jesus is saying. My going away through death on the cross makes it possible for God to have a place for you in his house. The place is, is there for you and there's room for you because I'm going away, because of the cross. And the real benefit to you is that I am in God's house. That where I am is where you're going to be. And so the core of this promise and the, the thing to direct your hope and your attention to when your heart is in turmoil is that you have the chance to live with God forever. With him. To be with Jesus forever. This is exactly how 1 Thessalonians puts this point of emphasis. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and then here's the, the great part of this, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Which part do you encourage one another with? The whole thing, but it's that last phrase. We will always be with the Lord. And so there's the encouragement. There's the stability for your life in the midst of crazy circumstances or emotional turmoil. Settle your heart by pondering the reality that there is a place for you in God's house. And guess who else lives in God's house? God does. Jesus does. It's, it's the promise here that Jesus is giving that you will be walking with God in the cool of the garden as man was created to do. It's the promise that is given to us again in Revelation 21 that God comes down and descends to the earth for all eternity to dwell with men. He will be our God. We will be his people. That's the end game. That's the ultimate goal. There's a quote that I found this week as I was thinking about all this that I think puts our struggles in this life and the hope of Eternity in the presence of Christ in perspective. It's by a guy named Samuel Rutherford. When we shall come home and enter to the possession of our brother's fair kingdom, and when our heads shall find the weight of the eternal crown of glory, 
And when we shall look back to pains and sufferings, then shall we see life and sorrow to be less than one step or stride from a prison to glory. And that our little inch of time suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. There's the perspective that we need in the midst of turmoil and struggle. It's hard, it's real, it's genuine, it's not to downplay the difficulty you're facing at all. And that's not what Jesus is doing here. Instead, he's saying, let me expand your vision up and see where you will end up. And when you get there, you will look back and you'll go, yes, it was suffering, it was real, but man, it was so short. And it wasn't anything compared to the glory that I'm now experiencing in the presence of Christ. That's where he begins to help their troubled hearts, out to the big picture. But that's not the only promise he gives here. He expands on it a little bit in verses 4 through 11. The second promise meant to keep your heart and my heart when we face turmoil is this. It's the pathway to God's presence is clear. If the ultimate goal is to be with Jesus, if that's what really secures our hearts, then according to verse 4, the disciples already know how that happens. Look at verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. Now the disciples hear this and they've heard Jesus explain about his house and the way to get there and all of that and that they already know the way to get there. But as has happened over and over again in the Gospel of John, they're not getting the symbol that Jesus is using here. So they misinterpret his use of this word way. You know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas interprets it as a specific destination, a a physical location maybe, that Jesus is going to head off to. Look at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? He's not grasping the the significance of the promise of eternity in God's presence, the ultimate destination and goal that we have. So Jesus explains it to him. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. The way into God's presence, the way into a relationship with him is not a particular pathway of life for humans to participate in and obey. It's not a series of commands that you have to keep. Instead, it's Jesus. He is the pathway. He is the one that brings you into God's presence. So let me break down this verse a little bit, at least the portion that we've read so far. This is a very familiar verse to you. Let me try to get at what Jesus is explaining here. This is another one of his I am statements, right? You've seen these throughout the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the bread of life. I'm the door into the sheepfold. So he's making all of these I am statements defining who he is and his ministry. And here he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So three different words that he uses And we need to understand what the relationship is between these three. 
He begins here by saying, I am the way, and that seems to be the core of what he's talking about, and it seems to be the core and the most important word because of what he says in verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. And then Thomas goes back and highlights that word as well in verse 5. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And so the main kernel of what he's talking about here is the way, and then the truth and the life are supporting this pathway that Jesus is describing here. They're in a supporting role. So Jesus is the pathway into God's presence. That's what he means by being the way, because he speaks the truth because he accurately reveals God the Father. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of John. He reveals God's character, and he's the way, the pathway into God's presence, the access point into God's presence, because he is true life. He is the creator of life. He is the resurrection and the life. And so... He brings people to God as the way because of his substitutionary atonement, his victorious death on the cross. He accurately displays, truthfully displays God's justice for sin by his death. And he brings true life as he rises from the dead and wins the victory over sin and death. And so that's what Jesus is getting at here when he says, I am the way, and he's the way into God's presence because he's the truth. He reveals the truth about God, about his love, about his justice, and he's the life as the creator God who has made everything and raises people from the dead and gives new hearts. He's the one that can bring the truth and the life together and make a pathway into God's presence. And here's the thing about this I am statement that he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way, truth, and life. There is an exclusivity to this. Look at the remainder of verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is an exclusive claim if there ever was one. You cannot believe in some sort of universalism that everyone's going to end up in the same location anyway based on what Jesus says here. My brother was in town last weekend uh, and we were talking on one of the car rides that we were on and we were talking about this person that we both know who was raised in a Christian home and this particular individual sort of got out into the world, joined the military, and began to meet people from diverse religious backgrounds. And he began to doubt the exclusivity of Christianity and of the claims of Christ because he started to come in contact with all of these different people from different backgrounds. And one time I was talking with this guy about it, and he said to me, Nate, if you were born in Iraq, you would grow up a Muslim and you would be confident that Islam is true. And so that sort of like recognition from him led him to sort of flatten everything out. And in some ways, and for some people, that exposure to all of these different religions makes people think, well, all of these religions have a little bit right, and ultimately they all lead to the same God and the same destination. 
Eventually, if you're sincere and if you follow this religious path, you will get there. Jesus' words here simply eliminate that possibility. They're not all going up the same mountain to the same God. That's not how this works. Jesus is the pathway up the mountain to the true God. And he's the pathway to the true God and to eternity in his presence because of our problem of sin. Because sin has alienated us from God and we need forgiveness. He's the only one who can bring that to us because he reveals God truthfully to us. He's the truth. And because he's the creator God who can give true life. So he's the only way. Verse 7 expands on this and explains his exclusivity. Look there. This is why. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. To know him is to be on the pathway to the father. From now on, you do know him and have seen me. This is why no one can come to the father except through Jesus. But the disciples aren't quite there yet. They're not fully grasping what Jesus is saying in verse 7. And you can see that in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. It's like they, wanna, they don't understand it and so they're thinking there's a way to go around the pathway and get to the top of the mountain and see the Father. Which this is a, in some ways a perfectly legitimate desire to know the eternal creator God, but they're missing the reality of who Jesus is, which is what Jesus explains in verses 9 through 11. Here is the way to get there. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is basically a summary of this reality that the whole Gospel of John has been teaching us and pointing us to. What Jesus is saying is, I am God, the eternal creator God. And I bring the divine revelation of God to human beings. I am the light. I make it clear who God is. I'm one with the Father. You see me, you see what God is like. But that truth can only be grasped by faith. Look what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 10 and at the beginning of verse 11. Do you not believe? Verse 10 and look at 11. Believe me. This is how you access the pathway. You believe in him. You believe this reality is true. That this man who walked the earth, died on the cross, rose from the dead, is truly God. And Jesus says that our faith can come from two directions. The words of Jesus that he has spoken, his affirmations that this is true. And then in the Gospel of John, we've gotten further evidence of this through the works that he has done. 
his signs at the end of verse 11. Believe on account of the works themselves. His words, the signs that he has performed, all of that, what we've seen in the Gospel of John, points us to Christ's oneness with the Father and yet his distinction from the Father as the Son and the second person of the Trinity. We see who God truly is here and we see the pathway to eternal life with him. And this oneness between Jesus and the Father gives us confidence that Jesus is the way, that a connection to him, a union with him will bring us into God's presence and that we will end up in God's house for all of eternity. Jesus is how we get there. And that should calm our troubled hearts. The pathway is clear, right? It's not, it's not confusing. It's obvious through the scriptures. And it's Jesus and trust in him and faith in him and not by your own works and not yeah, by your ability to walk some life of obedience. It's him. He is the pathway. So all of this is sort of focused on the future of our eternal presence with God, both of these initial promises. And the last one brings us to our life now and the promise to calm a troubled heart in the way that God interacts with us now. This is our third promise here. The partnership of God's presence is powerful. This also is meant to sustain you in the midst of difficulty because of the connection that you have to God right now in your life. God is working. If you're a follower of him, if you're united to Christ, he is working in you and through you now. He has not left and cut off all communication. He's not gone without any way for us to get in touch with him, right? And that may have been what the disciples were feeling like here. But as you'll see, as we continue in chapter 14 and 15, he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to encourage us and to help us along the way. And in the meantime, he's given us quite the mission to pursue as we're in partnership with him. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So again, you can see belief there at the beginning of verse 12 is what connects us to Christ's work on the cross and to him, and that connection with him flows out into our daily lives and into our partnership with him. This is quite the promise that's made here for you and I, right? I mean, think about what he's saying. We will do greater works than Jesus? Okay, in this gospel alone, Jesus has turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 people. He healed a man born blind. He raised a guy from the dead after he'd been in the tomb for four days. So what does he mean by doing greater works than him? He doesn't mean that the works that we do will be more dramatic than him. He doesn't mean that you can go out and walk into a hospital and heal a bunch of people by touching them or raise people from the dead. Regardless of what certain faith promise 
healer people will tell you on television and then ask you for their money, for your money. That is not what he's saying here, that you will do greater works by performing miracles after he's gone. The point here is found in the reason why these works are greater, because there's been a change in circumstances. Look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I am going to the Father. So Jesus has performed signs. The ultimate goal of his work, though, has been somewhat obscure during his earthly life. I mean, even his closest disciples aren't really getting it. Even here, they're still a little bit confused about what's going to happen and the significance of it. They're not there yet. And so Jesus says, look, when I go to the Father, everything changes. Because his going to the Father means his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and his gift to his people of the Holy Spirit. And once all of that happens, there will be greater clarity. Now, you can see it in the early chapters of Acts. The disciples are like, oh, we get it. It's all clear. And Peter explains it very clearly as he preaches on the day of Pentecost. And so, when Jesus says, they'll do the works that I do and greater works, he's talking about the continuation of his ministry in the sense of proclaiming the gospel. Speaking the words about him and his kingdom and his death and his resurrection. He's going to return to the Father. He will be glorified. His fathers will present the truth about him. They'll preach it and they will see many, many people turn to him. New life will come all over the world. People's hearts will be made new. And so this is a a promise to calm your troubled heart, that you are now in partnership with God. And that partnership includes the proclamation of the gospel, but it also includes unbelievable access to him. Look at verses 13 and 14. Even though Jesus is physically gone from them, the disciples have direct access to him now. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name... This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, of course, you know this is not a blanket promise where you can rub the lamp and get whatever you want. That's not what he's describing here. But when you ask, because you have access and you're connected to him and united to him and you have the Spirit inside of you, When you ask with the same goal in mind that Jesus has for the Father to be glorified in the Son, when you ask according to his name, which means according to his character and his goals and his work, then he'll give you what you want. When your desires are the same desires that he has for him to be glorified and for his gospel to go out into the world, then he'll respond And he'll work in you and through you. That is a promise here that he gives, which indicates his ongoing partnership or our ongoing partnership with him. So, take a step back. Think about all three of these promises here. And think about how this began. 
with the disciples having troubled hearts, hearts in turmoil and confusion. Jesus has given these promises to them, and they are in the midst of it. This is a traumatic event for them and a traumatic time for them. But let's be clear. What has he promised them and what is he telling to you and to me as well? He's promised that their ultimate destination is with God in God's house, in God's presence, enjoying the knowledge of God and the fellowship of God. He's promised that they have the way to enter into God's presence. Jesus, who truly reveals God and brings life because he's the life. And he's promised that they have complete access to God now. They can directly ask him for things because of their union with Christ, because of the Spirit, who he's going to talk about next. So what I would say to you is, when your heart is troubled, when my heart is troubled, don't ignore these basic realities. I know they probably seem very bottom shelf. They seem basic. They seem like, well, yeah, of course, we've got a future home in heaven. Jesus is the pathway to God. We have a connection to God now. They seem very basic, but there's a reason that Jesus goes back to these things to calm his disciples' troubled hearts. Don't ignore these basic realities. Over the years in my marriage, there have been times where I will particularly go on a road trip with Bethany and the kids, and we will get to the end of the day, and I will go, I do not feel good. Something's off. I think I'm getting sick. I feel nauseous. Things aren't right. My stomach feels rough. Like, I'm just off here. I don't feel well. Bethany has learned in those moments to calmly respond to me as I'm convinced that I'm getting sick and going to start throwing up any minute now. She has learned to calmly ask me if I've had a drink of water in the last few hours. And I will suddenly realize that I have not because I've been driving all day, you know, and you don't want to stop to go to the bathroom a lot. And so I don't drink any water. All I've had is coffee in the morning. That's it. And then I'll go and I'll drink a glass of water or two. And in 10 minutes, I feel like a new man. I feel better again. The reason I'm telling you that is because sometimes it's the most basic, most fundamental things that we need. And we need to remember those things. So here's what I would say to you. Remember your future home with God. Remind yourself of your connection to the way Jesus Christ. And go to him in prayer. Go to him knowing that you have full and complete access and that he loves you and he loves to be glorified through his people. That's how Jesus sought to calm their troubled hearts. And I think that's exactly the way he wants to calm your troubled heart this coming week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for this passage, for these words that have been given to us, and I pray that you would help us to consider these realities. They are basic truths, but I pray that we would go back to them and be encouraged and challenged and helped by your word. We thank you for all you've done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.